Hello, and welcome to whatever episode number this is of Pulp Today. Cheers. Mm. That is Vesper Martini. I've wanted to do a James Bond episode for a long time, and I was going to do Casino Royale and do the making of a Vesper Martini. Uh, it's a cooking show, but no. I don't, uh, this week, last 10 days, I didn't do a want to do a pulp today during the election season because there are more important things going on than uh, old novels. But um, two things happened in the last 10 or so days, uh, maybe 11 days now. Uh, Sean Connery passed away, and uh, a certain cartoonish supervillain began to get his comeuppance. And uh, that made me want to talk about Ernst Stavro Blofeld, a stroker of white cats, owner of incredible real estate on which he builds outlandish fortresses. Um, the James Bond books were a huge effect on, a huge influence on me when I was a kid. I enjoyed the movies. The movies definitely came first for me. And then I, I worked in a used bookstore in Milltown, New Jersey, and slowly but surely collected all the books and read them in order, which I recommend. They're better than you think and better than you've heard. And one thing that's disappointing about the movies, if you like the books, it's fine that they're very different. It's fine that James Bond has a sense of humor in the movies that is lacking from the books, but that they shot the movies so wildly out of order there's a beautiful arc to the books, and particularly it, it all comes down to the last four books, three of which, the first three are the, for want of a better word, the Blofeld trilogy, and then Man with the Golden Gun is kind of a coda. The story so far is that James Bond evolves from a callow youth assassin in uh, Casino Royale. In Thunderball, he encounters Spectre for the first time and foils their nefarious plot, but he hears of their leader, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, criminal mastermind. Uh, and also, aside from Dr. Evil, a huge influence on how we write supervillains. There's some of Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes and Fu Manchu. There's some of the previous great supervillains in him, but Blofeld is kind of an original twenty mid-20th century creation born of post-war conspiracy theories and the new world order that we were living in at the time. So he defeats Blofeld in Thunderball without seeing him or meeting him or killing him. In Honor Majesty's Secret Service, he goes up against Blofeld again, but at the same time, he's falling in love with a one young woman named Teresa, the Countess Teresa de Vincenzo. He foils Blofeld, but Blofeld gets away and he marries Tracy, and uh, then Blofeld murders her on the last page of the book. And that brings us to You Only Live Twice, my favorite book in the series, uh, which I probably read once every couple of years since I was a teenager. It's very different from every other book in the series. It doesn't have a clear plot for most of the book. Uh, Bond is a mess, suffering from grief and what we would currently call PTSD from the death of Tracy. He's lost all ability to do his job. M with the help of a psychologist, actually, decides to give Bond one last chance on a violence-free diplomatic mission that's important, but it won't put his life in danger. He won't be endangering other people with his current level of incompetence 
and distraction. So Bond goes to Japan to meet Tiger Tanaka, head of the Japanese Secret Service. He's going to try and get from Tiger the results of a decoding process the Japanese have called Magic 44, which can decode high-level Soviet transmissions. And uh, Britain wants that. Tiger has it. Bond is there on a diplomatic mission to just sort of get it out of him. The first half of the book is a travelogue of Japan as they hang out and have a good time and become friends. Halfway through the book, Tiger says, okay, here's the thing. We'll give you Magic 44, but there's a distasteful thing we want you to do. There's a foreigner who's come to Japan, Dr. Guntram Shatterhand. For reasons that are complicated to go into for our purposes here, they want him dead. They don't want to dirty their hands killing a foreigner. But James Bond could do it. So uh, after a little training with the ninja, Tiger springs this on Bond. Great paperback cover. Tiger springs this on Bond. And uh, Bond says, and you're sorry, you are going to have to hear my terrible Sean Connery impression when Bond speaks. All right, said Bond resignedly. Now let's have a look at a photograph of this chap. Has the superintendent got one? It had been taken from a long way away with a telephoto lens. It showed a giant figure in full medieval chain armor with the jagged winged helmet of ancient Japanese warriors. Bond studied the photograph carefully, noting the vulnerable spots at neck and joints. A metal shield protected the man's groin. A wide-bladed samurai sword hung from his waist, but there was no sign of any other weapon. Bond said thoughtfully, He doesn't look as daft as he ought to, probably because of the Dracula setting. Have you got one of his face? Perhaps he looks a bit madder in the raw. The superintendent went to the bottom of his file, extracted what looked like a blown-up copy of Dr. Guntram Shatterhand's passport photograph, and handed it over. Bond took it nonchalantly. Then his whole body stiffened. He said to himself, God Almighty, God Almighty, yes. There was no doubt, no doubt at all. He had grown a drooping black mustache. He had the syphilitic nose repaired. There was a gold-capped tooth among the upper frontals, but there could be no doubt. Bond looked up. He said, Have you got one of the woman? Startled by the look of controlled venom on Bond's face, the superintendent bowed energetically and scrabbled through his file. Yes, there she was, the bitch. The flat, ugly wardress face, the dull eyes, the scraped back bun of hair. Bond held the pictures, not looking at them. Thinking. Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Irma Bunt. So this was where they had come to hide. And the long, strong gut of fate had lassoed him to them. They of all people. He of all people. A taxi ride down the coast in this remote corner of Japan. Could they smell him coming? Had the dead spy got hold of his name and told them? Unlikely. The power and prestige of Tiger would have protected him. Privacy, discretion, are the heartbeat of Japanese aims. But would they know that the enemy was on his way? That fate had arranged this appointment in Samara? Bond looked up from the pictures. He was in cold control of himself. This was now a private matter. It had nothing to do with Tiger or Japan. It had nothing to do with Magic 44. It was an ancient feud. Bond decides not to tell Tiger and to go on his mission and kill Blofeld with his bare hands. He knows that if he tells anybody that it's Blofeld, the wanted master criminal, 
everyone will come running and he won't get his chance to kill the man with his bare hands. So he gets his way to Blofeld's fortress and he's captured. And uh, he is threatened with being blown apart by... Blofeld has a, a geyser on his island that he controls with a... The pressure can be controlled with a wheel. Uh, and he places Bond on top of it and opens the wheel and Bond eventually relents and admits that he is James Bond. And uh, Blofeld takes him to a room and tells him, okay, I'm going to kill you. You got any anything to say for yourself? Bond dropped his lighted cigarette and left to smolder on the carpet. His whole body tensed. He said, I suppose you know you're both mad as hatters. So was Frederick the Great. So was Nietzsche. So was Van Gogh. We are in good, illustrious company, Mr. Bond. On the other hand, what are you? You are a common thug, a blunt instrument wielded by dolts in high places. Having done what you were told to do out of some mistaken idea of duty or patriotism, you satisfy your brutish instincts with alcohol, nicotine, and sex while waiting to be dispatched on the next misbegotten foray. Twice before, your chief has sent you to do battle with me, Mr. Bond, and by a combination of luck and brute force, you were successful in destroying two projects of my genius. You and your government will categorize these projects as crimes against humanity, and various authorities still seek to bring me to book for them. But try and summon such wits as you possess, Mr. Bond, and see them in a realistic light and in the higher realm of my own thinking. Blofeld was a big man, perhaps six foot three, and powerfully built. He placed the tip of the samurai sword, which was has almost the blade of his scimitar, between his straddled feet and rested his sinewy hands on its boss. Looking up at him from across the room, Bond had to admit there was something larger than life in the looming, imperious figure, in the hypnotically direct stare of the eyes, in the tall white brow, and in the cruel downward twist of the thin lips. The square-cut, heavily-draped kimono made something huge out of the towering figure, and the golden dragon embroidery, so easily to be derided as a childish fantasy, crawled menacingly across the black silk and seemed to spit real fire over the left breast. Blofeld had paused in his harangue, and waiting for him to continue, Bond took the measure of his enemy. He knew what would be coming. Justification. It was always so. When they thought they had got you where they wanted you, when they knew they were decisively on top, before the knockout, even to an audience on the threshold of extinction, it was pleasant, reassuring to the executioner to deliver his apologia, purge the sin he was about to commit. Blofeld, his hands relaxed on the boss of the sword, continued. The tone of his voice was reasonable, self-assured, expository. Now, Mr. Bond, take Operation Thunderball, as your government dubbed it. This project involved the holding to ransom of the Western world by the acquisition by me of two atomic weapons. Where lies the crime in this, except in the erewhon of international politics? Rich boys are playing with rich toys. A poor boy comes along and takes them, and offers them back for money. If the poor boy had been successful, what a valuable byproduct might have resulted for the whole world. These were dangerous toys which, in the poor boy's hands, or let us say, to discard the allegory, in the hands of a Castro, could lead to the wanton extinction of mankind. By my action, I gave a dramatic example for all to see. If I had been successful and the money had been handed over, might not the threat of a recurrence of my attempt have led to serious disarmament talks, to an abandonment of these dangerous toys that might so easily get into the wrong hands? 
You follow my reasoning? Then this recent matter of the bacteriological warfare attack on England. My dear Mr. Bond, England is a sick nation by any standards. By hastening the sickness to the brink of death, might not Britain have been forced out of her lethargy into a kind of community effort we witnessed during the war? Cruel to be kind, Mr. Bond. Where lies the great crime there? But I can see that we have no contact. I cannot reach what serves you for a mind. For your part, you cannot see further than the simple gratification of your last cigarette. So enough of this idle chatter. You have already kept us from our beds far too long. Do you want to be hacked about in a vulgar brawl, or will you offer your neck in the honorable fashion? Blofeld took a step forward and raised his mighty sword in both hands and held it above his head. The light from the oil lamps shimmered on the blade and showed up the golden filigree engraving. Bond knew what to do. He had known as soon as he had been led back into the room and had seen the wounded guard's staff still standing in the shadowed angle of the wall. But there was a bell push near the woman. She would have to be dealt with first. Had he learned enough of the thrusts and parries of Bojutsu from the demonstration at the Lint Ninja camp training camp? Bond hurled himself to the left, seized the stab, and leapt at the woman, whose hands were already reaching upward. The staff thudded into the side of her head, and she sprawled grotesquely forward off her chair and lay still. Blofeld's sword whistled down inches from his shoulder. Bond twisted and lunged to his full extent, thrusting his staff forward in the groove of his left hand, almost as if it had been a billiard cue. The tip caught Blofeld hard on the breastbone and flung him against the wall, but he hurtled back and came inexorably forward, swishing his sword like a scythe. Bond aimed at his right arm, missed, and had to retreat. He was concentrating on keeping his weapon as well as his body away from the whirling steel, where the staff might be cut like a matchstick, and its extra length was his only hope of victory. Blofeld suddenly lunged expertly, his right knee bent forward. Bond fainted to the left, but he was inches too slow, and the tip of the sword flicked his left ribs, drawing blood. But before Blofeld could withdraw, Bond had slashed two-handed sideways at his legs. His staff meant bone. Blofeld cursed and made an ineffectual stab at Bond's weapon. Then he advanced again, and Bond could only dodge and feint in the middle of the room and make quick, short lunges to keep the enemy at bay. But he was losing ground in front of the whirling steel, and now Blofeld, scenting victory, took lightning steps and thrust forward like a snake. Bond leapt sideways, saw his chance, and gave a mighty sweep of his staff. It caught Blofeld on his right shoulder and drew a curse from him. His main sword arm... Bond pressed forward, lancing again and again with his weapon and scoring several hits to the body. But one of Blofeld's parries caught the staff and cut off that one vital foot of extra length as if it had been a candle end. Blofeld saw his advantage and began attacking, making furious forward jabs that Bond could only parry by hitting with at the flat of the sword to deflect it. But now the staff was slippery in the sweat of his hands, and for the first time he felt the cold breath of defeat at his neck. Blofeld seemed to smell it, for he suddenly executed one of his fast-running lunges to get under Bond's guard. Bond guessed the distance of the wall behind him and leaped backwards against it. Even so, he felt the sword point fan across his stomach. But hurled back by his impact with the wall, he counter-lunged, swept the sword aside with the staff, and dropping his weapon made it die for Blofeld's neck and got both hands on it. For a moment, the two sweating faces were almost up against each other. The boss of Blofeld's sword battered into Bond's side. Bond hardly felt his crashing blows. 
He pressed with his thumbs and pressed and pressed and heard the sword clang to the floor and felt Blofeld's fingers and nails tearing at his face, trying to reach his eyes. Bond whispered through his gritted teeth, Die, Blofeld, die! And suddenly the tongue was out and the eyes rolled upwards and the body slipped down to the ground. But Bond followed it and knelt, his hands cramped around the powerful neck, seeing nothing, hearing nothing, in the terrible grip of bloodlust. Bond slowly came to himself. The golden dragon's head on the black silk kimono spat flame at him. He unclasped his aching hands from around the neck, and not looking again at the purple face, got to his feet. He staggered. God, how his head hurt. What remained to be done? He tried to cast his mind back. He had a clever idea. What was it? Oh, yes, of course. He picked up Blofeld's sword and sleepwalked down the stone passage to the torture room. He glanced up at a clock, five minutes to midnight, and there was the wooden box, mud-spattered, down beside the throne on which he had sat days, years before. He went to it and hacked it open with one stroke of the sword. Yes, there was the big wheel he had expected. He knelt down and twisted and twisted until it was finally closed. What would happen now? The end of the world? Bond ran back up the passage. Now he must get out, get away from this place. But his line of retreat was closed by the guards. He tore aside a curtain and smashed the window open with a sword. Outside there was a balustraded terrace that seemed to run around the story of the castle. Bond looked around for something to cover his nakedness. There was only Blofeld's sumptuous kimono. Coldly, Bond tore it off the corpse, put it on, and tied the sash. The interior of the kimono was cold, like a snake's skin. He looked down at Irma Bunt. She was breathing heavily with a drunken snore. Bond went to the window and climbed out, minding his bare feet among the glass splinters. But he had been wrong. The balustrade was a brief one, closed at both ends. He stumbled from end to end of it, but there was no exit. He looked over one side, a sheer hundred-foot drop to the gravel. A soft, fluted whistle above him caught his ear. He looked up. Only a breath of wind in the morning moorings of that bloody balloon. But then a lunatic idea came to him. A flashback to one of the old Douglas Fairbanks films, when the hero had swung across a wide hall by taking a flying leap at the chandelier. His helium balloon was strong enough to hold taut fifty feet of framed cotton strip, bearing the warning sign. Why shouldn't it be powerful enough to bear the weight of a man? Bond ran to the corner of the balustrade to which the mooring line was attached. He tested it. It was taut as a wire. From somewhere behind him, there came a great clamor in the castle. Had the woman woken up? Holding on to the straining rope, he climbed up to the railing, cut a foothold for himself in the cotton banner, and grasping the mooring rope with his right hand, chopped downwards below him with Blofeld's sword and threw himself into space. It worked. There was a light night breeze, and he felt himself wafted gently over the moonlit park, over the glittering streaming lake, towards the sea. But he was rising, not falling. The helium sphere was not in the least worried by his weight. Then blue and yellow flame fluttered from the upper story of the castle, and an occasional angry wasp zipped past him. Bond's hands and feet were beginning to ache with the strain of holding on. Something hit him on the side of the head, the same pain that was already sending out its throbbing message of pain. And that finished him. He knew it had. For now the whole black silhouette of the castle swayed in the moonlight and seemed to jig upwards and sidewards and then slowly dissolve like an ice cream cone in sunshine. The top story crumbled first, then the next, and then the next, and then, after a moment, a huge jet of orange fire shot up from hell towards the moon. A buffet of hot wind, followed by an echoing crack of thunder, hit Bond and made his balloon sway violently. 
What was it all about? Bond didn't know or care. The pain in his head was his whole universe. Punctured by a bullet, the balloon was fast losing height. Below, the softly swelling sea offered a bed. Bond let go with hands and feet and plummeted down towards peace, towards the rippling feathers of some childhood dream of softness and escape from pain. What happens next? <laughs> I kind of spoiled the end of from uh, You Only Live Twice for you, but not really. By the way, a falling apart 1960s uh, hardcover that I have, complete with coffee stains. So even in the early 60s when uh, Fleming wrote this, his second to last novel, there's still the meta-fictional element. There's still... Bond talking about how villains always monologue, a, a, a phrase that Brad Bird gave it in the movie The Incredibles, hugely influenced by Bond. The reference to something as dramatic as escaping on a balloon being something out of a Douglas Fairbanks movie. And the death of Blofeld, the arch nemesis. I will wrap up this episode with something from the movies and not from the books, but appropriate to this time and space. Welcome to Help Blowfell. See you next time. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.